0: We'd like to thank our friends at Sleep Number for sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. Sleep Number is changing the way we sleep with their latest beds, the Sleep Number 360 smart beds. They automatically adjust on each side. To keep you sleeping comfortably all night, discover the difference at sleepnumber.com thrive. Hello and welcome to the Thrive Global podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm so excited about my guest today. He's not just one of our most brilliant thinkers and chroniclers of ideas. He's also an amazing writer and storyteller who is able to see patterns, find unlikely connections, and make those ideas and science and research applicable to our daily lives. That's what the ancient philosophers that I was brought up with in Greece did, and Malcolm Gladwell is our modern version. He's a best-selling author of many books, a longtime writer at The New Yorker, and in season three of his podcast, Revisionist History. Malcolm, I'm so happy to have you here.
1: Glad to be Since here. Since
0: we are recording a podcast, let's start by my asking you about Revisionist History. What made you want to do a podcast based on that?
1: Oh, uh, well, I wanted to do a podcast. So the question is, what was the broadest possible topic that I could pick so that I wouldn't run out of ideas? <laughs> um And I decided that anytime you throw the word history in the title, it gives you license to talk about absolutely anything you want. So the title is simply a, it's a cover story for me, just uh, giving myself the maximum amount of freedom. So it isn't, not every, many of our episodes are not really about the kind of history you would learn in history books. I mean, it's about stuff that's much more um, of the moment.
0: So, of all the different media that you're expressing yourself in, is the podcast now the favorite
1: well it's the it's the most it's the newest so i'm having i'm discovering things so it has that um you know it's it it feels different from writing which I've been doing my entire life, which makes it attractive but uh it really depends on when you ask me <laughs> if you ask me when i'm you know uh in the middle of it, and worried that I don't have enough ideas, and working twelve hours a day, I would say I much prefer the measured pace of writing. But now that it, my season's over, I, you know, I'm looking back fondly at the experience. So um, it's like anything, I suppose. It's a, it's a ver my, my feelings about it are variable.
0: And right now, you're also in the middle of another book. I am, yes, on strangers. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little more about that?
1: Yeah, I'm interested in. Um, why we're so bad at dealing with people we don't know. I mean, you could also argue we're bad at dealing with people we do know, but, but I feel like that's a well-covered territory. I'm interested in specific instances that we have, where we have difficulty understanding, decoding, uh, making sense of evaluating strangers, and trying to figure out what is, what's stopping us from being better at that most kind of fundamental of uh, human tasks.
0: And are you also exploring the strange phenomenon of sometimes meeting a stranger and feeling immediately like you've known them forever and um, you'll be friends forever?
1: Oh uh, no, well that's a very interesting subject. But I'm interested in people who you who are who are strangers and stay strangers. You're talking <laughs> about the beginning of friendship. That's a that's a, a wonderful topic for. But a book. also
0: how. Instantaneous and unexpected, it often is like you meet somebody, yeah, and suddenly you have that instant connection, that instant intimacy. You suddenly want to tell them everything about your life. Uh, I'm sure that's happened to you,
1: yeah, I'm not sure it has. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, then but you have um, something in store.
1: <laughs> um, we have no, to I engineer had, no, it. <laughs> I have met people that, no, I, I, um, that, yeah, like I said, that's actually a super interesting question, and the, the. Interesting question, I suppose, is to what extent is that feeling of instant intimacy that you have an illusion? So is it all in your head? And is it, I mean, which isn't to say that it isn't real and doesn't facilitate the birth of the friendship, but what if all of those things that you imagine as drawing you to someone else are figments of your own imagination?
0: Well, in a sense, you could say that falling in love is an illusion. Um, there is an element of an illusion if you sort of try and break it down into linear mm-hmm. logic. It probably wouldn't add up. So this is like a kind of falling in love except without the romance and the sex, yeah. just the friendship.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the fun stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I suppose the other, other interesting question would be to what extent is that driven by, is it less about the person than the situation? Mm-hmm. And that's actually a really... That's something I think about, have written about a lot and deal with in my current book, which is um, those instances when we mistake a question of personality or character for a situation. And that's a very, very longstanding fundamental human error that has all manner of consequences. And uh, we don't do a very good job of distinguishing between those two. Uh, those two factors,
0: but also, I know you believe in God, but um, I haven't read if you believe in reincarnation. But for those who believe in reincarnation, it's often the feeling of reconnecting with someone you've known before.
1: Oh, that assumes you're in your previous life you were a person, as opposed to
0: a dog, <laughs> you know, a rabbit.
1: <laughs> I don't know whether you've ever met a rabbit and had a feeling. <laughs> Great intimacy and understanding.
0: My younger daughter did. She loved every rabbit she met. <laughs> Maybe that's the explanation. You know, one other medium that you express yourself in amazingly well, and I've I've seen you many times do it is public speaking.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And interestingly enough, you didn't start being a good public speaker, and I totally identify with that because I started by being a lousy public speaker. Plus, I was at Cambridge and I had a even worse Greek accent. So the whole thing was mm-hmm. an even more humiliating experience. So what are the keys? What What can you tell to people who are still terrified of public speaking, who are more afraid of it than anything else, including death by mutilation?
1: <laughs> um, can I tell them? Well, they're, uh, you know, the obvious boring point is there is no substitute for practice. So I have done a lot of public speaking over the years, and, you know, my improvement is a linear function of the number of times I've done it. Um, once you can rid yourself of the anxiety, obviously the task becomes a lot easier. Although I don't think when I started out, I was um, I was terribly good. I was never an anxious public speaker for this, for the sort of bizarre reason that, The only thing I've really ever been anxious about in my life is race, running races. I was a big runner as a child and I, races would fill me with anxiety for weeks beforehand. Anxiety of such kind of scope and severity that nothing else, everything else by comparison pales. So every time I would get even remotely nervous about public speaking, I would think, but this isn't nearly as bad as running a race. (laughs) And my anxiety would subside. So my advice to people would be, half-whimsically, find something even more terrifying. Do that, you know, pursue (laughs) that, and speaking will will cease to create any kind of terror in you.
0: So now that you no longer run races, right, except... Oh, I still run races. I mean, uh, other than with LeBron James.
1: No, he is... LeBron, (laughs) who I have repeatedly uh, invited to race me over the mile, uh, has not said yes Yet. yet. But I run, yeah, I run, you know, I run races around New York and...
0: And um, and and do they still fill you with anxiety? Oh,
1: of course, yes, yes, it never goes away.
0: Is anything else filling you with anxiety? This no, days? it's only racing, only racing,
1: only racing. I have other strong emotions, but anxiety—the specific feeling of anxiety—I only in my case accompanies racing, the prospect of running a race.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating because stress and anxiety are features of people's lives in so many ways, and uh, in fact, thrive global. Um is sort of entirely designed to deal mm. with all those. So it's great that you don't feel it in any other area of your life. Or
1: maybe I should say I don't acknowledge it in any other area of my life. How's that? That would satisfy the inner the inner shrink in all of us, if I was <laughs> more honest about it. Hmm.
0: So Are there circumstances that make it less likely you'll be stressed, like having had a good night's sleep or having eaten the right food or things that you can do to prepare for what potentially could be a stressful situation to Mm -hmm. mitigate the stress?
1: Well, you know, uh, it's a very interesting question. Um, I don't know whether I recognize events as stressful. That is to say, I understand that certain things, you know, certain responsibilities seem uh, to loom so large in your imagination that they can be a little scary. But my response to that has always been that uh, if you prepare properly for those events, then the stressfulness goes away. So my, I think the way I deal with stress in my life is simply to do a little bit of work every day. So I'm, I'm the opposite of a procrastinator. I'm a, what is the opposite of a procrastinator? Pretty a pre a a <laughs> When I was, I will tell you a story which will make everyone hate me. When I was in college, um, in Canada, we had courses which lasted the entire year. So, you know, you start your course in September and it would end in, in June, May. I would take courses which had a, you know, a series of essays, essentially. And I would do all of my essays for all of my courses in the first half of the year. And now I had a practical reason for doing this. One was it was just a lot less, I realize now, it was a lot less stressful. You just got them out of the way. You never had to worry about them. I, you know, But the second reason was I didn't have any money. And so in the second half of the year, I would write papers for everybody else. That's <laughs> one of the ways I put myself to college. Um, but that was that's a good example, I suppose, of my...
0: Precrastination.
1: My precrastination. <laughs> I am a, I'm well, I find if I prepare properly. My mother does this. My mother is a uh, is always prepared, and I think she does it for the same reason.
0: And your mother is a psychotherapist.
1: My mother, uh, yes, she is. Yes,
0: and she still practices.
1: She's not. My mother's now retired. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, but she still continues to prepare. <laughs> I don't think I don't think her preparation was linked to her career as a psychotherapist. I think it predated it. Probably caused it. Um, and is now postdating. And now, yes, she's now <laughs> moved on.
0: And does she um practice her psychotherapy on you?
1: Well, in a, in subtle motherly ways, but not explicitly. I mean, a truly smart psychotherapist would be too smart to practice their psychotherapy on their children, right? I mean, if you well, did that, then obviously. you're not much of a psychotherapist. you <laughs> You would do it behind the scenes in kind of, uh, you know, in very uh, artful ways,
0: OK. We're now going to take a quick break to share a sleep tape. Brought to you by our sponsor, Sleep Number, because sleep makes the difference for a thriving mind, body, and soul. Today's sleep tip is to remember to breathe. Counting out a few slow breaths is one of the techniques I use when I'm having trouble falling asleep. One such version, the 478 method popularized by Dr. Andrew Weil, is rooted in the ancient Indian practice of pranayama. I love its simplicity. You inhale quietly through the nose for four counts, hold for seven counts, and exhale with whooshing sound through the mouth for eight counts. Even if deep breathing, light stretching, or meditation don't immediately put you to sleep, they can help calm and relax you, which is both a necessary precursor to sleep and a technique you can use to reduce stress during the day. This sleep tip was brought to you by Sleep Number. The bed that knows you, senses you, and adjusts to you. Only at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Are there other things that you prioritize that help reduce stress or just generally make you more productive, enjoy life more? Like, where are you with sleep? What's your relationship with sleep like?
1: I have have, sleep and I are friends. I uh, sleep a lot. Do you all, have like a all, favorite
0: I, number? Do you have an optimum number of hours? Eight to eight and a half.
1: Mm-hmm. My, I come from a family of, uh, of great sleepers. As a child, I realized in retrospect, I got an astonishing amount of sleep. I would go to bed at, well into high school, I went to bed at nine o'clock. Um, in fact, I think not until my last year of high school did I stay up past nine or nine thirty. And I was not known, I was an early riser. In our family, we all got up around eight. So I think I was getting 11 hours of sleep <laughs> a night and well into high school, and I thought that was normal. I had no idea people stayed up that late. The The mantra in our household was that an hour of sleep before midnight was worth two hours of sleep after midnight.
0: Which is scientifically proven
1: now. Yeah, I have no idea. Yes. I, I thought that was just something my father uh, invented to get us to go to bed earlier. But my parents also went to bed that early and woke up that late, and— Regarded anyone who either went to bed late or woke up early with horror, that was it was considered <laughs> to be some sort of barbaric thing that people who um, weren't properly civilized did. And so I continue to sleep a lot. And of course, I exercise I try to exercise every day. that's probably on an even more important component. But I'm realizing as I say all this, that I am revealing how absurdly luxurious my lifestyle is.
0: No, I think you are reve- is... you are revealing how important sleep is um to performance because you are unbelievably productive and yet our culture is built on the delusion that in order to succeed and be productive and perform you have to sacrifice sleep and you have people bragging, you know, about how little sleep they get. We have yeah. phrases like you snooze you lose, I'll sleep when I'm dead. The culture is beginning to change because there's now so much unequivocal science that this is false. Mm-hmm. But you're ahead of the time, and so your parents. I mean, maybe we need a new postscript to 10,000 hours of preparation to...
1: A dozen hours of sleep.
0: dozen hours of sleep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll tell you a story about my father, which sums up his approach to life. One of my favorite stories was he was a professor at the University of Waterloo. He was offered a job at Yale. He went to visit... See what it was like. Came back, and we said, What was it like? He said, I was terrible. And we said, Why is it terrible? He <laughs> goes, Well, I got there at nine o'clock in the morning. They were all at their desks. When I left at five, they were still at their desks. <laughs> the notion that you could be productive sitting at your desk all day was to him, you know, it was antithetical. He was, I would point I should say, an extraordinarily productive mathematician, one of the most productive mathematicians in his field. I never saw him work on the weekend, never saw him work past two or three in the afternoon, never saw him work before nine in the morning. He worked in sharp, concentrated bursts, punctuated by tea with my mother and walks with his dog um, and plenty of sleep. And I, that was the model I grew up with that you, you're, it's far better to look for a quality hour of work than it is to, um, or I suppose a better way to say it is he took seriously the notion of diminishing margins of Yes.
0: It's just amazing because we are just beginning to discover now how true that is. And in fact, we have a whole section of what we call new role models on Thrive that include people like Jeff Bezos who wrote a piece entitled Why Am I Getting Eight Hours of Sleep is Good for Amazon Shareholders mm-hmm. and analyze his decision-making and how impaired it is. Again, the law of diminishing returns yeah when he's sleep deprived, but are you sleeping with your
1: phone? my phone yes, you mean my yeah. phone next to me, yeah, as if it was like a pillow that I would cuddle
0: oh not necessarily no that. my phone
1: would be my phone is miles away why it's I wow.
0: amazing my you, you don't is, realize how what a pioneer you are in this seventy percent of people sleep with their phones either on their nightstand or literally in bed with them,
1: yeah. That sounds to me absolutely barbaric. I didn't even know people did that. <laughs> why, why would you do that well, so that you can...
0: Two things. Part of it is the growing addiction, which makes yeah. people be on their phones until the very last moment, and then, you know, you put it on your nightstand and you turn the lights off. Another reason is the excuse that you need an alarm clock to wake you up because uh-huh. often you wake up long before your body is ready to wake up. And uh, and also the fact that often, unfortunately, people wake up in the middle of the night for whatever reason to go to the bathroom, whatever, and then they go to their phones to entertain themselves while they are trying to go back to sleep, which, of course, inevitably delays being yeah. able to go back to sleep. So it is barbaric, but it happens very widely, including mm. among teenagers who yeah. then wake up exhausted and are promptly diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. <laughs> when they can't pay attention at school so it has a huge a sort of unintended consequences yeah yeah so i'm very glad to hear that you are not one of those barbarians
1: i i appear, I appear to be ticking all your boxes this I is very know, exciting just for me. It, i just love it i haven't got so much affirmation in quite some time
0: <laughs> so then uh, when you wake up in the morning do you have a, a routine like that you follow or that is does it vary like do you go or I run right away? Do you have breakfast? What do you do?
1: I like to work in the working. The morning is my most productive time for so working. So first
0: thing before you run before you. I do don't anything.
1: exercise until the evening. Exercising, I I think of many writers. I think agree with this that the morning hours are your most productive. So my feeling is I shouldn't I shouldn't uh, squander my most productive hours on on not on other activities. So I don't schedule anything in the morning. I don't meet people in the morning. I don't exercise in the morning. I take those first crucial three hours and I can usually get an awful lot done.
0: And that's before you go to your phone or you check email and then start working? Well,
1: I'll see. I wouldn't, I don't really answer much email in the morning unless it's crucial
0: You'll I take answer a in an
1: email in the evening. This notion of going to the phone strikes me as big. The, <laughs> the phone is becoming a kind of, it sounds like it has an institutional presence. <laughs> it's like I'm, I, I'm going to the doctor and then I go to the phone and then I pick up my dry cleaning. Um, no, my phone is, becomes, I suppose, a part of my life uh, in the afternoons when, I mean, I will check. It, there's a certain point of the day when I do check, you know, things like, you know, who's called me, things like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. I think, Malcolm, you may just have to be our Thrive role model. (laughs) The
1: thing is, if you don't answer people's texts and phone calls and emails right away, then they learn that and they understand. You just build into them an expectation. They're not getting it back right away. Everyone's happier. They don't have to respond to my response right away, and I don't have to respond to their response right away. So I just slowed down the process. It's a fantastic thing. If everyone observed the twenty four hour rule for responding to emails, the whole world would be a much better place.
0: so you are creating a more civilized cadence to your interactions with the world,
1: yeah. And when, by the way, if you get an instant response from me, then you know you're someone special. So I can actually <laughs> signal I can send an emotional signal with my emotion with the speed of my response that most people cannot
0: <laughs> <laughs> great. well, we are, I hope everybody in the world now knows that. And of course, running, you've described as um, an amazing time to daydream, Mm -hmm. that you treasure it because there's so little time left for daydreaming in our Mm -hmm. days. And did you discover that early on? Is that a new discovery?
1: No, it's always been, you know, running has always been very appealing to me for that purpose, even when I was a kid. Um, As I've gotten older, I've run, I take longer and longer runs. And so you have more, you know, as a kid, I rarely ran more than, you know, I would run six miles. Now I run often 12 miles or so it's difference between being out for 45 minutes and being out for an hour and a half. So once the the second hour of any run, the analogy, you know how the the shrink will always tell you when the minute you start going three times a week, the quality of the hour changes. And in running, (laughs) the same is true. Once you, Past the first 60 minutes, the quality of the experience changes sort of psychologically and mentally. You're finally calm and um, your mind can truly wander. You need to be pretty, not tired is not the right word, but you, uh, you need to have run through your kind of normal reserves of energy before you get to that state.
0: So for you, running is part of your determination to preserve cognitive time.
1: Yes, you. If you're going to write something, uh, for every I've often, for every hour you spend writing, you need to spend at least two hours thinking about what you're writing. And so the question is, where, do the, where are those two hours? You need to find them and protect them against those who would take your hours from you. Um, so running is, in one way, it's simply a, simp- a it is a, de- a defense against the world. It's a chance for me to spend time with myself.
0: And uh, for most people who are not as disciplined as you are, the world is encroaching on our time in more and more intense and demanding ways, uh, especially through social media. How do you manage social media?
1: Well, I, uh, I only do Twitter. I don't really do anything else. Um, and I do it relatively sparingly. I probably tweet once or twice a week. And I only follow maybe 30 people on Twitter. I'm constantly trying to follow fewer, not more. Um, I don't do Facebook. I don't do Instagram. Although I follow, I think, five people on Instagram, mostly runners. That's pretty much it. Is there other social media? I don't do Snapchat. I'm probably 40 years outside of the demo.
0: You don't do Instagram, except following some some runners. I don't really
1: take photos, so Mm -hmm. it seems pointless for me to do Instagram. I don't really understand Facebook. Never really understood it. And Twitter, I think, is useless, but enjoyable. I always find the notion that somehow the Russians insidiously influenced our electoral process through their sly use of Twitter to be so preposterous. It's like, really, Twitter? Who? who first of all, no one reads their Twitter. How can they? Most people I know, the only person who reads a Twitter is me. Why? Because I follow 30 people on Twitter. No one follows 30 people on Twitter. Everyone else is following 10,000. If you follow 10,000 people on Twitter, you effectively follow no one on Twitter, right? So the Russians supposedly sending out like tweets. Who read them? I mean, it's just the whole thing is preposterous. Twitter is a a complete and utter waste of time, but nonetheless, it can be quite enjoyable.
0: So you think that the Russians... More easily influence people through Facebook.
1: I think they more influence, more easily influence people through Fox News.
0: Well, the, the Fox News <laughs> didn't need any help from the Russians. <laughs> so.
1: But uh, no, I don't deny that they influence the election in subtle ways. I don't think Twitter is one of them. If if someone wanted to influence an election in America, why wouldn't they just hack into a ballot box and change the result? It's actually not that hard to do.
0: It's Definitely That's, harder.
1: Not harder than
0: buying ads on Facebook.
1: Yeah, I I remain incredibly skeptical that buying ads on Facebook is terribly meaningful unless you're selling, you know, party favors, um, which they were not doing. It's one thing to sell someone a product that they're looking for. It is quite another to change their minds about something. You know, the principal effect of that kind of ideological advertising is merely to reinforce people's pre-existing ideas. So did Russian interference in social media convince people who were already pro-Trump to be more pro-Trump? Sure. But is that an accomplishment of any great consequence?
0: No. I think it's a question of whether, did they convince them to be more pro-Trump to the point of showing up and voting? You know, did they convince them to do something that involved an action rather than simply strengthening an opinion?
1: Yeah, I sincerely doubt. I I don't think that Twitter and Facebook ads can get people to vote. I think you vote when you, um, it's a habit in your life, something that you have, I mean, I think there's all kinds of much more profound reasons why people vote. One of the things that has always amazed me about people's approach to social media is that they confer on social media magic properties of persuasion that no one has ever conferred on any other form of, like, they speak about it like the way people in the Middle Ages spoke about various, you know, spiritual relics. If you touch the Virgin Mary, you will be healed. Like, it's that level of... Like, this is crazy. Like, if you read the Twitter, your mind will be forever altered, right? It's like, it's the same, said in the same tones. It's just the whole thing's nonsense.
0: Even if that is nonsense, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of evidence now that it affects mental states. That uh, especially among teenagers, spending too much time on social media makes them more depressed, more anxious comparing their lives to the highlight reel of somebody else's life. So those are sort of real facts. So there is a a danger in that sense.
1: Yes, that's not so much the content as it is the medium itself. So I I witnessed the following thing in Los Angeles not long ago. I was sitting outside at a little coffee shop. A mother comes in with a three-year-old, buys the three-year-old some ice cream. The three-year-old sits down to eat the ice cream, and the mother... First takes his picture, then makes a video of him eating the ice cream, and then he continues to eat the ice cream and she circles behind him and shows him the video that she just made of him <laughs> eating an ice cream now, there is zero chance that dealing with your three year old in that way isn't is not isn't going to screw up your three year old like <laughs> what you're just producing some kind of bizarre self-obsessed narcissist. If the kid is somehow made to believe that the act of eating an ice cream is worthy of his mother videotaping it, and then he's made to watch it, it like it's just the whole thing with Soap Bananas. Like, that's, I wanted to scream. Are you crazy? Like, talk to your child, like, give him a book to read, or even just let him sit there and eat the ice cream, like, enjoy the ice cream. Does the whole thing have to be memorialized? So, yeah, that's. That's nuts. In fact, the thing that makes that nuts is the utter inanity and vacuity of the content. Yeah, there is no content. And that is the truth about 99% of what's on social media. It is substanceless. And it is the addiction to something that has no meaning that is dangerous.
0: And that is um, also, by extension now, an addiction to games. Uh, Is there any game that you play online?
1: Um Fess up, <clears throat> Malcolm? No, I don't, I don't play games on <laughs>
0: Malcolm Gladwell, secret fan of Candy Crush.
1: <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I like... Fortnite? As a kid, I played games. I don't play video games. I don't find um, that kind of extended time with my... Are these things you play on your phone? Yeah. I never played them as a child on computers and such. I don't know. You played Scramble
0: or Monopoly or things like that?
1: I played Monopoly as a child with my friends, but we played our own version, which um, I have to say, uh, uh, eerily pre... It was an eerie premonition of the financial crisis. So (laughs) when I was playing Monopoly with my friends in the 70s, we deregulated the game. So essentially we said, <laughs> we, we're going to play this game, which, which requires the acquisition of real estate. But every single rule that Monopoly has given us, we are going to set aside. Aside from that you roll the dice, that you circle the board, that the point of the game is to acquire real estate and make the real estate more expensive. So we started with no money. Because if you think about Monopoly, I don't know why this is interesting. If this is not interesting, just tell me to stop. No, I love it. The problem with Monopoly, and the reason why Monopoly is lame, is that it's not a real-world situation. You give someone $1,500 to start, and that means that everyone on their first four or five circles of the board buys every property they land on. That's not real. What's, What's real about that? That's like a marketplace entirely populated by billionaires. Billionaires have no economic constraints on them. So their purchasing behavior is not interesting. Is not game-worthy. Game-worthy decisions are only interesting when they require some degree of thought. Thought accompanies financial scarcity. Monopoly, if you start with no money, is super interesting. So you go into debt. You have to create complicated (laughs) financial instruments to survive. (laughs) You sell. You land on a property and you sell the rights to... Or you haven't landed on a property... And you see that someone else desperately wants that property, so you preemptively sell them essentially a derivative so that when you lend them that property, they can buy it from you, right? So what we constructed, and we were only like nine or (laughs) ten, was this incredibly complex series of financial instruments that one would naturally create in the absence of liquidity because we remove liquidity from the game. Our games um, were fantastically interesting and they would only take about an hour and a half, and they would have this, re- this level of financial complexity such that when the financial crisis finally happened, I was like, oh, surprise! it took this long. I would have thought since we were doing this in the 70s that America would have come to a- – and by the way, our, our games always ended in essentially a version of the financial crisis, But <laughs> someone would become so completely outrageously encumbered in all kinds of debt that the game would collapse.
0: So we know what happened to you. What happened to your friends who played the game with you? Well, what are they doing now?
1: Terry is a uh, tenured professor at Harvard in Russian history. Fred runs some complicated business somewhere. I should just moved to Michigan, but they are both very successful. I believe this was good training. For yes,
0: I, it seems incredibly good training. Definitely better than watching yourself eat ice cream. Yes. So you actually have a lot of advice for CEOs and um, people in business about how they can improve their performance and their company's uh, bottom line, including uh, introducing the concept of reflective practice in their lives, eliminating strict work hours. What do you think is the most important advice you can give people who are in business, who are running businesses?
1: Well, I mean, I'm not sure I can give advice because... My rules for living are very much um, uh, a product of what I do. So I don't really have people working for me. I don't really have an organization. And I do creative work that has amorphous deadlines. And But you a, don't
0: have researchers? Not really.
1: I mean, I have an assistant who does stuff for me. I have an assistant who, when I ask her to do things for me, we always uh, call the, the, the tagline on the interview is always magic powers. Because <laughs> I, assume, I assume that whatever task I give her uh, requires magic power.
0: Like making a restaurant reservation?
1: No, no, no. No, no <laughs> up in that. Um But uh, no, I don't really have meetings ever. Well, I do with the podcast more so. I have, a, uh, I have a team there. But then we don't meet that often. So anyway, my point is my life in no way resembles the life of a CEO. Who A CEO is someone who has to have constant interaction with lots of people. So I don't know whether if you were if someone runs you would notice you run organizations people who run large organizations can't go off for twelve mile runs in the middle of the afternoon can they well they they might
0: actually be more effective if they followed your dad's advice you know you break off your work to have tea with your wife or go for a run and return recharged I'm a big believer in that yeah
1: yeah I don't know I mean I don't know whether if I was a a doctor in a hospital, that strategy works.
0: Well, actually, I just wrote a piece about the crisis of burnout among doctors. You know, two-thirds of them say they're burnt out, depressed, anxious, suicides among doctors are proliferating. So there's definitely something wrong Yeah, uh, in the way we are running practices around the medical profession. So that's actually a good example of something yeah. that's completely ready for disruption. Mm-hmm. I'm, I just want to end by talking about um, your spiritual life, because I found it fascinating that on your website you say, I believe in God, that you are rediscovering the faith and the traditions that you are brought up in. Tell us about that, and what role now religion mm-hmm. is playing in your life.
1: Huh. Uh, it's not something I talk about a lot, uh, because it's largely private stuff, but um I mean, I grew up in that in a religious uh, serious religious tradition, and I find the discipline and practice of thinking of the world outside of our uh, oneself as enormously important that at its heart, I think religious practice is about putting God at the center of things and not yourself, and that is the single most important thing I think. Human beings can do it is clarifying and liberating and uplifting and all kinds of um, important things. So that's the simplest way I would describe the appeal of of spirituality in my life. And I think perhaps to link back to what you're saying before, the reason that is a very on a high level, that is a way of dealing with things like stress. I think that a lot of the stress that people mm-hmm. feel uh, they feel because they have put themselves at the center of their own universe. When you remove yourself from that place, you, I think a lot of the pressure subsides.
0: I love that and totally believe in that. And for me, a related uh, fact is um, what Socrates called practice death daily, um, or the Romans called memento mori and carved mm on trees and statues. So it's also uh, the constant reminder that we are mortal. Yeah. And... Uh, this all is going to end. And uh, if you put yourself at the center of everything, that's kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah. You've said once that um, you expect to go to a better place when you die. I hope so. So is that real? I mean, do you think about it or do you never I don't, think I about mean, I
1: don't, it? I, it's, I, I think it's, um, it's not terribly useful to think about it. I think our energies are, are all best spent trying to make the, the best of the world that um, we're in at the moment. Um, and just um, have some faith that there's something beyond it.
0: But there's some connection between, let's say, the loneliness epidemic and putting yourself at the center of everything and some connection between the fact that we're more and more disconnected from a real sense of spirituality and the opioid crisis, a lot of these manifestations of, of trying to deal with that, Existential angst.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably true.
0: Do you discuss it with your parents? Do you talk about religion, or is that something that's more individually practiced? It's more,
1: I think, individually uh, practiced. Yeah,
0: I th- I'd love to to hear a podcast in the fourth season of Revisionist History about religion.
1: Well, we did one in the first season on a a ninety eight year old Mennonite pastor called Generous Orthodoxy. That was one of my favorites.
0: And what was the theme? I didn't listen to that.
1: It was about a man whose uh, son was gay, and he's a pastor in the Mennonite Church, and he ignored his church's ruling and married his son, he presided at the wedding of his son, and uh, had his, his at the age of 98 was stripped of his status as a minister. Mm. And it was all about how graciously he dealt with that penalty. It was all about what is the correct attitude we should take when we're trying to change an institution. He was an extraordinary figure.
0: I'm going to um, listen to it as soon as I get on my treadmill tomorrow.
1: Good. (laughs) Good.
0: And Malcolm, thank you so much for bringing so much grace to everything you do, to your work, to your speaking, to your writing. And thank you for really enriching our culture.
1: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for being here, Malcolm. And to everybody listening, be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app and stay tuned to thriveglobal.com and iHeartRadio for updates on new episodes. And in the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today. And also thank you to our sponsor, Sleep Number. If you're not sleeping well, it could be your mattress. The Sleep Number bed knows, senses, and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably. This is not a bed. It's proven quality sleep. Discover the difference at sleepnumber.com thrive.